15 minutes of downtime, one five minutes, was considered a national crisis and 30 minutes, three zero minutes was considered a you know bit of an international disaster. So wow. you really, um, yeah, you had to be accurate as well as fast, but of course accurate because you don't want to damage, you know, systems or equipment or people, of course. So keeping all of that in mind as well. That's a huge amount of pressure. Yeah. Coming out of a university degree and then coming out of, you know, a graduate engineering position to suddenly being one of two critical personnel that have a 15 minute window to fix any problem on the site. That's huge. Can you do your task when you've been on console for five hours and you're tired and you're a bit grumpy and you've got all these voices in your head and everything is going on and something's gone wrong? It's like, well, you know, can you be calm and can you respond accurately during those situations? You just worked the problem until you figured it out, basically, and that's, that's the attitude of everyone and uh, that's what we did, yeah. Andrea Boyd is an International Space Station Flight Operations Engineer. Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are go for TLI, over. She's tasked with being a voice from Earth to the world's astronauts aboard the ISS. Orbiting the globe and operating more than 408 kilometres from any other human being, the ISS acts as a multinational space hub for the world's space programs. Hello, I'm Sunny Williams. I'm up here on the International Space Station. Now, Andrea's job is one of the most high-pressure environments anyone can work in. And as you just heard, it can change in a matter of seconds and turn to an international catastrophe okay. in minutes. Five guns. Go, guys. We've had a hardware restart. My God. Today's conversation focuses on how Andrea deals with those pressures and the unique situations her incredible job puts her in. If something happens or it's not quite normal, then astronauts are really smart people, so they'll ask a question about it. Command module system. So we're in good shape if we need to get home. We don't give a, a random answer just to say, hey, we've got an answer right now, how great are we? Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. No way, like, if, I, if we don't know something, we'll say checking and say, oh, please stand by for 10 minutes, please stand by for 20 minutes. That's Roger Flight, that's the uh, AC problem. Roger. Andrew's been working in the space industry for more than eight years, and she holds one of the industry's most elite jobs. But her path to get there started from humble beginnings. A child's wonder at the rural night sky from her home in South Australia. And a love of one of sci-fi's great defining mythologies, Star Trek. Star Trek solidified that because I learnt the word engineer watching it and I was like, right. If I can become an engineer one day, I can do space stuff. <laughs> I also really liked, you know, pulling things apart and putting them back together in general. And I had no idea that there was a term for that effectively. And it wasn't until I saw it on TV with, you know, engineers fixing things and making them work. And I was like, right, that's what engineers do. That's what I like doing. So let's figure out how to be a space engineer eventually. Live long and prosper. It's wonderful when you have that conjoining of uh, fiction and, and the wonder of pure reality. I grew up in a, a fairly urban setting in Brisbane, and the first time that I really got a good look without any light pollution of the night sky uh, was when I went out on an army exercise with the Australian Army Reserve. And of course, you have all of these uh, blackout conditions when you're doing infantry operations. And suddenly you're in this position where you're thousands of kilometres out west, 
there's no lights around anywhere. You're not allowed to put on any lights and you have this spectacular view uh, of the uh, night sky. And it really is something completely unique to a lot of people these days because, of course, we all grow up in areas in which light pollution is everywhere and, and it's very difficult to get those sorts of views unless you have an interest in it. And I can imagine how spectacular that must have been to a child because, of course, when I saw it, I was, I was an adult. But when you were being introduced to that, of course, you were only just growing up. And I'm interested, did anyone else in your family encourage that interest when they noticed that you really appreciated that? Yeah, I was definitely very conscious of it. Um, when I was 15, I went to the South Australian Space School. It's, it was kind of like, a, like I feel when I go to Comic-Con now, it's just you feel like you found your people uh, because, you know, at school it's good because I was doing sport and I was doing musical theatre and I was doing science and maths, extracurricular things, maths camp, whatever, but everyone was kind of a subset of all of these interests and then at space school, a lot of the attendees were, you know, really into space, but then also really into lots of other interests as well. So it was really nice to have just so many different students from all over South Australia that had shared interests and were able to relate to each other straight away and really um, actively get into all the different activities that the teachers were running. And when you went to university and you started working in engineering and you were doing mechatronics, as you said, there wasn't necessarily that clear pathway from there. It was a lot of it was on speculation that this is likely to be helpful. And so when did it start feeling real to you that it might actually be possible that I'm going to end up working in this area? During first year, there was a poster on one of the walls in engineering about a space conference in Melbourne. I was like, right, I'll, I, you know, because of course I worked after school and, and after uni, so I've had two or three after school jobs since I was 14. Uh, and I saved up and, and sent myself to this conference in Melbourne for a, the weekend. It was brilliant and it actually turned out that there was a delegation from my university that went to the conference as well I just had no idea because I first year wasn't really connected with anyone yet um, and at that there was an Australian who was working at the European Space Agency who gave a presentation and until that point I didn't know anything except for NASA existed so having an Aussie present about a European Space Agency where there were people from different nationalities and they worked on the International Space Station that's that's the missing piece and that's where I need to go and work so European Space Agency and ISS Mission Control. Now I've got a clear goal and there's actually a place that I can go. Isn't it amazing how sometimes our entire lives are dictated by singular experiences in the sense that, of course, you always wanted to work in space. You'd been working toward that for a long time. You'd been doing the appropriate degrees. But until you went and saw that presentation by an Australian at that conference from an organisation that was feasible for you, that was the turning point that, that made you realise that that was the job that you would eventually be able to do and, and subsequently did do. And, and I love it how those moments when hard work meets opportunity and the magic happens. Do you look back at it at that way and, as well? Or, or from your perspective, was it always going to be and it just happened that that conference was a, a good selling point, but really you were never going to be turned away from it? Yeah, I think I have a personality trait where if I decide to do something, I don't consider that it's not possible. <laughs> um, and Apparently, because my mum told me later, actually, when I was saying, you know, oh, I plan to do this and it was some outrageous aim. And apparently I was told by various people or other parents that it's probably not a feasible idea, but apparently I never listened. And I actually remember being told it wasn't possible. So that kind of backs that up. Actually, my year three teacher always said this and it stuck with me as well. Um, there's no such thing as luck. It's when opportunity meets preparation. And that's, that's completely it. So I was preparing for something and then, yeah figured out what the actual opportunity was. It didn't all go completely smoothly, though, did it, getting toward the European Space Agency? Um, it's, it's not an easy job to get by any stretch of the imagination. It's probably one of the most difficult positions to get of any uh, career and very sought after. And can you tell us a little bit about what happened the first time that you applied um, after you'd finished your university work mm. and, and some of the jobs leading up to that? Yeah, so university was... Uh, you know, I did a lot of um, student clubs, space clubs, uh, student volunteer at uh, space conferences, all of that. And I worked quite hard for and created a position in Vienna, 
at the European Space Policy Institute and figured that might get me one step closer. It was my second final year of university, so I had um, one more work experience potentially to go before my thesis year. And I went and just uh, through a friend of a friend somehow got a meeting with the, the manager of the mechatronics division at the European Space Agency. And I was like, right, I want to work here. <laughs> and he was like, hmm, well, Australian university degree, that's meaningless over here. So you should go study another university degree and do it all over again in Europe. And then you can be hired or you should work for at least four years. Uh, so that was awful because suddenly, you know, I was more than halfway through um, my university degree and was suddenly told that it was useless and I couldn't come and work at ESA. How do you get up out of that meeting, walk out the door, thinking that was the one chance that I had through a friend of a friend after probably months and maybe even years of machinations to get to Vienna in that point, and then be told that you had to go back to square one because what you were doing wasn't worth anything. How did you get up from that? Uh, well, there was a few things during the meeting that, that was surprising. Um, so I, I asked, you know, what sort of coding languages do I need to know as well to work here on different projects? And the coding language he said was ADA. I'd never heard of this before. So me in the meeting just like smiles and nods. And then um, I asked my friend about it and he said, I don't know, but we've got a library here. So the very first thing I did was go to the library in the space agency and sit down in the coding section with every book they had about Ada and look through it and figure out what they were talking about. <laughs> and that sort of occupied my brain for a little bit. And I think I just put off thinking about what I would do for a while. And um, yeah, I went back to Vienna and, and then yeah, I don't know. I, th I, I think denial was my reaction for a bit. I'll figure out something else. <laughs> so I went back and um, did second final year in Australia. And then that year I applied for work experience at regular companies in Australia. So I took the Engineering Engineers Australia handbook. They have classified where you can apply and which degrees can apply. So I was like, right, every company that had mechatronics in it. And one of them um, called me in for a, an interview and then for a second interview. And they were a really great company. So I worked for them for the whole summer just before my final year. And at the end of it, they they really liked me and I really liked them. And they offered me a full-time position as a graduate engineer one year before I even graduated. And so I, I signed and accepted that and was very happy to work for them for a while. And I was like, okay, well, let's do this and I'll figure out my years of experience as an engineer. And that was also took the pressure off in final year as well, because you're really, you know, having to work so much on your final subjects and your final thesis. And I at least never had to, you know, be the one dressing up in a suit like and and going to an interview and then coming to uni in the suit because you could tell who was sitting interviews that day <laughs> in the study rooms. So I never had that pressure in final year because I had a guaranteed job at this great company. And uh, and then that was my revised plan, I guess, was to say, okay, I I like this company and I'll, I'll work before I um, figure out how to get back to Europe then and go through that path. I love the idea of you coming out of that meeting, which I imagine must have been a very despondent experience and then jumping straight back into the European Space Agency library and learning a new coding language because it was mentioned in passing. Their library is amazing, <laughs> by the way. It's so, I mean, there's lots of different ESA sites, but the library at this one, it's, you know, similar categories to a regular library, but all the books are about space. <laughs> I, I could have lived there. <laughs> in some ways, I suppose maybe the uh, the research for the coding language was more inspiring. Oh, a little bit. But also, I I realize I am I'm terrible at that kind of old school coding because Ada is basically kind of Fortran or pre Fortran style era, and um, oh, it's not my cup of tea. So. <laughs> Hi everyone, producer Ed here. If you'd like to get a bit more involved with the show and get a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast, then follow along on Instagram, where you can find video highlights, quotes, show updates, and exclusive clips and content. The Instagram page is also an awesome way for you to get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the show, suggest guests, ask them questions, and engage with the community. Follow along by searching for The Risk Equation Podcast on Instagram. Your support and engagement helps the show and community grow immensely, so we'd love to have you on board. Again, that's at the Risk Equation Podcast on Instagram. Now back to this week's show.
So you end up working for this mining company um, in Megatronics, which is what you've done your degree in. And was there ever a time when you thought, maybe I'm always going to be working in Australia in a mining company or in similar industries and I'm never going to be able to transfer to the space agency? Was, was that ever a part of the equation or was that still that doggedness from when you were a child that wasn't listening to anyone telling you maybe this might not be feasible? Was that still there and still driving you every day? Uh so while I was working in, in regular engineering, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The company was awesome. And I actually started in the city. So I was doing um, office-based uh, programming for different automation projects all around Australia. But the senior engineers were the ones that actually went to site and did those. And then I found out by coincidence, because we were visiting some other graduate engineer friends in the mines, that my company had two people there. So I requested in my annual performance review, six months after starting there, oh, maybe one day I could go to the mines because uh, I was quite interested. And they were like, you want to go to the mines? You're on the next rotation. So nine months <laughs> after starting there, I suddenly stopped being a graduate engineer and I became a control system specialist and I was doing 12-hour shifts and uh, certifying up there. And I actually really liked it so much that I almost didn't want to leave. And I, at the same time, I kept doing space volunteering. So I was still volunteering with the United Nations uh, Space Youth Group, with the Australian Space Conferences. So I was still, yeah, very consistent through university and through working, having about 10 years of space engineering and then also, you know, four or five years of professional engineering as well. What was it like working out of the mines in those extreme environments, as you put it? What, what did a day look like for you there? Uh, so... The biggest thing was the training. So when you arrive, you're not allowed to go to any part of the mine unless you've been certified to be there. And I mean physically be there even. The mine was end-to-end, -end, so it was huge underground. It had about 400 kilometres of tunnels total underground on various um, depth levels. It had the process plant end-to-end, -end, so everything from the crusher all the way to refining. And for my position, because we were control systems, uh, normally you just certify in one area of the mine, but we had to certify in every area of the mine and underground and substations as well. Safety culture is really drilled into you at the mines in Australia. I think it's definitely not like that in uh, in mining in other countries. I've, I've seen uh, some mining ops in America and uh, many other places, and I, I was horrified and I would never work there. The safety consciousness uh, was drilled into all of us, and we operated like that. What are the risks of working in that environment? What were the things that they were mitigating against with those techniques? Uh, I mean, everything from protecting yourself, protecting your body. So if you're handling something that's, I don't know, say you're moving something on a smaller crane um, to go between areas, don't use your hands. Never use your hands around equipment. There's always better things to do. So, you know, protect your hands. Never stand under a suspended load, for example. Do you know how many construction sites I see that people are standing under loads of cranes? Like, no. And then even like, for example, if you're working underground, you had a green safety hat, cap lamp, or a uh, white one. So green meant that you weren't somebody that worked underground all the time. So the white ones who were the uh, professionals would know that they would look out for you, kind of like a learner's permit, which was, which was good when you were underground as well. So once you'd gone through all of the training uh, and all of the safety mitigation techniques, what did your day look like when you were working in that position as a, as a control systems engineer? So we would have to really respond to anything. And there's like 800,000 different systems and stuff on the site and code that I may or may not have ever seen before. Uh, but if there was anything wrong, um, you had to really fix it straight away. So you had to figure out what it was and figure out how to fix it really fast. And any uh, downtime, like 15 minutes of downtime, one five minutes was considered a national crisis and 30 minutes, three zero minutes was considered a you know bit of an international disaster. So you really, um, yeah, you had to be accurate um, as well as fast. But, of course, accurate because yeah. you don't want to damage, you know, systems or equipment or people, of course. So keeping all of that in mind as well. Wow. That's a huge amount of pressure. Yeah. Coming out of a university degree and then coming out of you know a graduate engineering position to suddenly being one of two critical personnel that have a 15-minute window 
to fix any problem on the site. That's huge. Um, yeah, but it's how it was and everybody else was working in that. So I think it's like, you know, if you're playing uh, basketball and you play against rubbish teams, your skills might not be that great. But then if you're playing against really good teams, you sort of step up. And I think it was a bit like that. So that's why my skills were hugely increased by working at the mine and working with such awesome people um, and, you know, being able to step up to that. And I think in general, my personality is pretty calm. Uh, so there was never any panic and everyone's attitude was just like, okay, you know, firstly, you keep everyone safe. Secondly, you keep, you know, uptime and you keep the equipment uh, healthy and, you know, you do uh, reliability engineering and all that for the maintenance. But yeah, like you just uh, worked the problem until you figured it out basically. And that's, that's the attitude of everyone. And uh, that's what we did. Yeah. This is a, um, this is a really fascinating area, which is how do you deal with the on-call pressure of not knowing what problem you're going to have to fix, uh, how much time you're going to have to fix it, um, and what the magnitude of the issue might be. Like that's a very stressful position to be sitting in um, for days at a time. What did you? What techniques did you have to to manage that? I mean, you should always be ready, having all of the systems up and ready, so that hey, if anything happened, I could get into that system within a couple of minutes. You know, because it's not like I have to load things or I have to figure out you know whichever server I'm going to. Like I know, and I've I've got it quickly accessible. If I couldn't get into something, the very first thing that we did was actually just to program a completely new. Um, CPU, for example, for the PLC system. And we would take that out with us just in case if we had to drive out to an area of the site, because you don't want to be wasting 20 minutes, like, you know, driving back and forth and getting a, a CPU in case you need it. There were a few cases uh, that, that it was completely unrecoverable. And so you just, you just, you don't waste time trying to figure out how to fix it and whatever. You can do that back in the control room. So you just, just need to take it out and you need to put a new one in. So things like that would make us more prepared and be able to re react faster, I think. And also drawing on the expertise of other people that were there, you know, because a lot of the, the operators have been there for, for 10, 15 years. Um, you know, I'm a green engineer that's, that's been there for less than a year. I definitely rely on the expertise of, of others that are around and take their advice as well. And were there any times when you felt like you had to manage your own stress around those situations or were you sort of always inherently built in such a way as it didn't really affect you? It was always work the problem, focus on what you can do and the other emotions didn't really play into it. Yeah, pretty much like you have time to stress out and um, freak out about it after you fix the problem, but fix the problem first. <laughs> One of the really good things that we did was uh, I made it a point with my crew to, because there were two control rooms, um, the one literally next to us in the next room. Uh, so we'd go talk to them, of course. Uh, but the other one in the mine end was quite far away. And I made it a point once per shift when it was quiet to go and drive and just have a coffee with them. Because over coffee, they would tell us small things that were happening. So we could address them before they became big things and we got a sudden phone call about it. So every every incident and even every near miss that wasn't something that happened got documented and sent out to everybody on a standard one pager. And we would go through those as a team as well. So you could see, you know, what was happening around site, things that you should be conscious of, even really stupid things. I mean, like paper cut, oh, I hurt my back a little bit getting a book off the shelf all the way through to, oh, I jumped out of a truck wrong and, and uh, rolled my ankle or like quite serious injuries. Always the serious injuries were people disregarding rules. Like one dude set himself on fire and I, <laughs> I mean, he really disregarded <laughs> so many rules. Um, obviously he was fired as well, but like it's, it's, you know, things like that, that just contribute overall to feeling uh, and working calmly. In, um, in some ways, you know, it, the experience that you're talking about makes me think of, um, because you mentioned it before, Star Trek and uh, sort of Scotty on the Enterprise. The android at the bar said you could show me my old ship. It's like this, this amazingly complex ship that needs to be kept going at any cost. There's no real downtime. There's no excuse for it. And yet there's a wonder to it. There's a beauty to it in the way that you have to be innovative, you have to be ready for the unexpected. The Enterprise, show me the bridge of the Enterprise, you chattering piece of... There have been five Federation ships with that name. Please specify by registry number. N-1. 
Gee. Was there a part of you that sort of thought back to that time when you were looking at the Star Trek engineers and thought, here I am doing it. It may not be in space, but it's pretty close in terms of the technical feat which is required to keep this sort of machine running. Um, yeah, no, I definitely um, thought about the parallels and yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. And I think that's the engineering mindset as well, is that you don't know what the solution is, but you know, you can figure it out. And that's engineering as a summary. I think I could have very easily stayed there forever. And I had to really force myself to say, okay, do some research, see what you can apply for in Europe. So six months before I, I left, I was really, um, yeah, making a, a huge effort to research what I could do in Europe and what positions there were on the space station control. I only found three, by the way. So I only applied for three jobs total in all of Europe. But I really had to say, okay, this is it. You've got you've to cut it off and stop here and buy a one-way ticket and go for these uh, interviews in Europe. So I went as far as I could remotely and uh, then had to go, of course, for the final interview in person. Got final interviews for two out of three. Um, and yeah, resigned and bought a one-way ticket and uh, went over to sit the interviews. The, the main one that I wanted was actually two hours after I landed off the plane. Uh, don't recommend that for many reasons, but that was the, the, main, the main, main one I wanted, which was um, the space station flight control uh, based in Belgium. And then I also had interviews at the big engineering center that I'd gone to the library and met the, the guy at many years before. So they were my main two that I had uh, when I arrived in Europe. I got off the plane in Brussels. Um, luckily, the head office for the company was pretty close to the airport. So I booked an airport hotel, um, left my stuff, took a shower, put a suit on and went to the interview. So I arrived on time uh, 20 minutes early and it was all good. I don't remember too much of what was discussed at the interview, to be honest. They said at the beginning, if it goes for around an hour, it's probably good and like a good indication. And it went for, for more than two hours. And so I was like, okay, I hope that's good. But I sort of couldn't tell at the end because they're like, thanks, we'll discuss it and call you. I was like, okay. And then, then there was like a space um, reception that my friends were going to. So I think I landed at three. My interview was at five and there was a space reception at like 7.30. So I went to the space reception and one of my former professors from Russia was like, you know, in the foyer when I arrived, he's like, Andrea, zdrasvitsya, kasilovlo. I'm like, oh no, now I have to speak Russian. So my brain was just like dead. I actually, I had a rental car. And at that point I gave the keys to one of my friends. I'm like, I am not driving again tonight. This is, I'm, I'm done. My brain is done. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I slept for like 12 hours after that. <laughs> and you got the job. I did. That was the job I got. Actually, the interview, I sat straight off the plane and that's the ISS wow. flight control that I've been doing ever since. Yeah. We don't recommend this to people at home. Don't, don't no, fly internationally. No, I definitely would have flown earlier. Yeah. Um, it's just, I had shifts and had to sort of, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember any of the interview at all or is it all just uh, a blur? They went through my CV and my cover letter and um, they... I, I very clearly said that, you know, I didn't have space experience, but I had 10 years of space volunteering and five years of professional engineering. And they went through each of those quite systematically and were asking me about each one and about different experiences. And I think to figure out, you know, could I really translate control room of mining to control room of the space station? And uh, we were we were able to establish during that session that it was definitely translatable and they appreciated the space projects I'd done as well, equally to the professional engineering. So a lot of it was um, engineering, analytical and, and going through that. Yeah. It must have been very nice uh, to, I imagine, sort of four or five years later, maybe six years later from that initial meeting that you'd had at the European Space Agency, where they told you that your Australian degree wasn't really worth the paper that it was written on for the purposes of applying to them and that they wanted you to repeat it in Europe. To then have someone say that your volunteering work from Australia and your work in the mines in Australia was of such a high calibre that they were willing to employ you above, I'm sure, many other candidates who are looking for those three jobs that you're able to find. That must have been a very gratifying experience and in some ways, I guess, a testament to the quality of the engineering work that was being done on the mines that you'd been at. Yeah, I think so, definitely. I am incredibly, incredibly grateful that they took a chance on me. It's been such a great uh, experience. I am Apollo. And I am the Tsar of all the Russias. Mr. Jack. I'm sorry, Captain. I never met a god before. And you haven't yet. So my first day of work in Belgium 
was at the European Astronaut Center in Germany to sit my first space station classes, my theory classes, to learn what I had to do. And it was classes Monday to Thursday and then exams on Friday. And it was that for two weeks. So that was incredible. And being exposed and going to the Astronaut Center for the first time was was amazing. I wouldn't have imagined ending up working there because also I didn't know, you know, I just knew I wanted to work in space station flight control and I didn't really know what the positions were even. Uh, so then uh, I later on was posted to Germany in the position that I've been doing for the last six years after working in, in Belgium for a few years at the beginning. Uh, but I didn't even know, you know, I was looking at the ESA centers, right, when I just on the internet early on at university and and I was like, okay, well, the engineering seems to all be done in these two places. So I'll probably work in those. And I did look at the others, but I was like, well, astronaut center, what would I do there? And yeah, it turns out to be that this is where I've ended up permanently. Yeah. Tell me about what it was like when you found out that you got the job, when, when all of this time and all of this effort suddenly became real and you're like, I'm going to work at the European Space Agency. What was that moment like? It was a little bit atypical in the sense that when I moved one way to Europe, I had one month free, so to speak, that I'd given myself to sit the interviews, wait for the results and see what happened. And if not, okay, I'd go and work at a control systems company. So during that month, I knew when the interviews were and I planned to sit those. And in between, I did other things. And by other things, I meant I went to Mongolia and Colombia. And I was I was in a gur in Mongolia with basically no internet or anything, but occasionally you could get mobile phone reception. And I would once per day just turn on the super expensive data roaming on, on my phone and just check if I had any emails from the company. So I was in a gur in Mongolia in the middle of nowhere in minus 40 in winter. And I turned on the phone and... Uh, found the the acceptance from that company. So it was pretty exciting. <laughs> um, my, my best friend who'd been living in Mongolia for one year at that point, plus a couple of Mongolians that were with us, we were very excited. We managed to find in a nearby village a bottle of champagne and, uh, and brought it with us. Uh, lesson learned, don't leave champagne in a vehicle overnight in winter because the glass will explode. However, you can still melt down the the frozen liquid and it's so bubbly. Um, so we celebrated in the middle of Mongolian winter in the, in the Mongolian desert. Uh, and it was pretty awesome. And I just casually sort of replied via my phone email to say, thank you very much. And I will be there at that time. And then I had to change my flights home to be a little bit earlier so that I could make it back for the starting date. Did you take a moment while you were out there on the Mongolian step to look up at the night sky? I imagine there may have been some opportunities without that much light pollution and just sort of think to yourself, Wow, it's a long way from Adelaide, but here I am. It is. And um, yeah, it, the the view was, of course, spectacular, although I didn't recognize many of the stars because I'm very, I, I, I know the Southern Hemisphere sky when I look at it at night. Um, I'm not, I'm still not actually very well um, versed in the Northern Hemisphere night sky. Uh, but absolutely, actually, we, we only spent one night in the city at the very end and the, the entire rest of the time um, we were in the, really in the middle of nowhere. So the, the night views were completely spectacular and I definitely appreciated that. And I guess it just had that extra, because it was the Northern Hemisphere and it was kind of unknown but still spectacular, it was like familiar but totally different and, and I don't know, it was a good parallel to like, I don't know what's going to come but it looks really good so hopefully it's awesome. Yeah. When you were starting in the job, after you'd gone through that initial training, which I imagine you were very prepared for with your mining experience at that stage and what had been required to get uh, to Oh, no, no. There. The training Not was like, you know, ISS control systems and ISS payloads and ISS voice protocol and documentation and ops products. And I'd never heard of any of this in my life. It was really studying from scratch and you had to pass all of the exams uh, as well. Um, so that was, that was a lot. It was really like, you know, going back to school and having uni exams all over again. And you really, you really had to work for it. So the mindset of being in a control room, yes, that's translatable. But then the actual theories that you had to learn, uh, is pretty different. How long was that theory training process? So to certify to be a flight controller, each flight controller position is a very specific certification. So you can't just jump between different flight control positions. You certify for one and that is your position. And if you want to change, then you have to recertify all over again. So it's really, it's a longer term commitment, you know, because certification the very first time, it's between sort of 10 months to two years for certifying um, just to finish all of your theoretical training and exams and then your practical simulations 
and uh, yeah, and have all of that. And plus you're on the job training where you're shadowing a flight controller on console. Uh, because once you're there by yourself, you know, you, you're really responsible for super expensive equipment and um, for science uh, payloads uh, and for the health, of course, and safety of the crew. It's like a whole other degree again, just to be qualified for the job after you're accepted. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, a lot of... <laughs> A lot of a lot of studying, but that's the thing. Like because then when you finally do sit as a flight controller, you know you've gone through so many months and so many hours of of studying for it and sitting the practicals. So once you finish the theoretical study, then you sit practicals. So you're on uh, you're in a simulation. There's usually only two new people per simulation, yep. but you've got all the other flight controller positions who are very experienced. So this is how you get brought up to their level as well. Mm-hmm. And your first one or two simulations, you know, you're bringing everything together, figuring out the voice protocols, figuring out what you're supposed to do. There's a full simulator giving you telemetry back and forth for the space station. So you're commanding everything. You've got the timeline, you've got your console logs, you're doing um, everything that you were trained to do, but suddenly, you know, really putting it uh, together in real life. Flight econ. So you can you can make your mistakes in the first, you know, one or two simulations, but then after that, you really need to be on the ball and you need to know what you're doing. Go ahead, econ. We need to get the uh, make sure the inline heaters for fuel cells one and three are off. Because, for example, at the beginning, I was. Um, Uh, payload control so I was the expert for the payload that I was certifying for at the beginning so anything that happened with that payload I was expected to be the specialist that knew you know what to do in an anomaly or different situations econ from flight you want to shut off both reactant valves to fuel cell number three anyway flight okay and the inline heaters off in fuel cells one and three please what we're proposing here, supposing here, Capcom, is we may have a had some problem in fuel cell number three, since that's the one that's reading no O2 right now. And, we may and during the simulations, it's much more stressful than a regular down console because in the simulations, not the first one, because you're figuring out, you know, how everything works. Uh, but after that, they start making things go wrong with your payload. And, um, you're saying that uh, one and two look okay? Well, what it looks like, it looks like the pressure's trying to stay up there, and this is the best guess we've got right now because we've got to stop this O2 flow. So they'll make different things go wrong, and you have to respond using the correct procedures, keep everyone safe, hopefully save mission science, etc. And then at the end of the simulation, they inject an emergency. So there's three possible emergencies on the space station. Uh, fire, depressurization, so if you've got a hole somewhere in the spacecraft, or toxic atmosphere, which is basically only ammonia um, because the external cooling loop on the US side is ammonia and the internal is water. And there's a very, very, very low chance, extremely low, that maybe potentially ammonia could come in through the heat exchanger to the internal loop. And if that does, that's it, game over, abandoned station. So we have three emergency scenarios and um, procedures for that. So in a, in a simulation, it goes for the European ones, go for eight hours uh, because it's also not just, you know, can you do your job? It's like, yeah, I can do any task if I go and sit down and do it and I've got a book and I've got time and whatever. But can you do your task when you've been on console for five hours and you're tired and you're a bit grumpy and you've got all these voices in your head and everything is going on and something's gone wrong? It's like, well, you know, can you be calm and can you respond accurately during those situations? So that's also the practical simulation, you know, really um, is able to assess that. And not everybody makes it through. Just because you've managed to pass the theory doesn't mean you're a, a good flight controller. And uh, it's not a no-child-left-behind situation, you know. Uh, even for astronauts as well, when they start, they're astronaut candidates for two years and they have to do all of their basic training, theoretical and practical, and not everybody makes it through. Uh, same for flight controllers. And some people are not suited to be flight controllers. They might be amazing team scientists or project engineers, but they might not be good flight controllers. And and I know people that have not made it through the training program and that's totally fine. It's just, you know, we really need to make sure that we've got the right people in the right positions. So once you've done these European ones, then you do international ones so then nasa and other people are brought in as well so then it sounds and feels like a real day on console because you've got all of the other countries and and languages and um and by languages i only mean english and russian but just you know accents as well from the americans and uh and others and yeah you've got really all of that and uh coming in as well so it feels like a real day on console and then similar things so they also inject anomalies and then at the end there's an emergency. So you're really practicing and training on all of those. So by the time you do finally sit console 
by yourself, you're quite relaxed and you've trained for it so much that it's much less dramatic than any simulation that you've gone through. Uh, and even, you know, years after being certified, I, I still take simulations every six months or so on average, just to keep my skills sharp and to practice the emergency procedures and things that go wrong and, and also to assist certifying new flight controllers as well. Okay, all flight controllers, I'm handing over to Glenn. I assume the majority of other team guys are pretty much briefed and up to speed as best we can. It's an elite position, isn't it? You know, like there's no margin for error when you're dealing with the International Space Station and the lives of astronauts on it. It requires that perfection. And it's incredible to think of this almost Kobayashi Maru-style simulation requirement um, as a part of that course, but it makes absolute sense. Like I know, for example, that pilots, of course, do the same thing probably to a slightly lesser degree, but certainly they do regular simulations every six to 12 months to maintain skills for rare but very, very important uh, emergency situations. Uh, and of course, that's just exactly what you're describing is how to make sure that you're sharp and ready for the rare but emergency things that you don't have much time to work on. And reflecting on that simulation process, it must be almost reassuring in a way to do it because you know that you're ready if something was to go wrong. You know that you've been tested in that environment. Yes. We also do a similar thing with the crew on board. So not for as many hours, but for a two-hour block once a month or so, um, we run a surprise uh, emergency. So we have like this block set up for onboard training emergency simulation um, and all the control centers and the crew have um, a simulation software set up. So we, they get a surprise, well, everybody gets a surprise, uh, two surprise emergency scenarios back to back and everybody has to respond, but like physically respond and the crew have to physically go to their vehicles, get the emergency masks, etc., And we have to do everything on the ground as well in the simulated version, of course, not changing real systems and really practice that. So actually we had one last week, which was very interesting because we have a new vehicle docked. So for the first time we were practicing it with our crew in two different vehicles on two completely different sides of the station and, and running that scenario, uh, and so I volunteered to take that actually, because I was like, that sounds, I, I, you know, I'm really interested in um, how that's going to play out. And it was intense. I have never had, um, yeah, it was a really, really interesting uh, simulation um, training exercise. We, we dealt with everything. We followed the correct procedures um, and we discovered a couple of little quirks as well, um, you know, just because it's a completely new scenario and we'd written new procedures for it, but now you're testing them out in real life. And so, for example, when uh, the first one's fire and we, we all followed the procedure and that was sorted quite quickly, and then the second one was a practice ammonia case and there's an ammonia fan um, that can be turned on in the new vehicle. And when they turned it on, it was so loud that nobody could hear the voice communications anymore. And um, we were sort of expecting that, but weren't expecting that. You know, like um, we knew it was going to happen, but then when it actually happens in real life, it's like, okay, well, we can't um, use space to ground to talk to them now. Uh, we'll we'll switch to the text-based system. So um, just just doing that in real life compared to yeah, it was really um, really good. So I think we're we're much we're going to change a couple of things in the procedure now, and uh, we're prepared in case something happens uh, for real. But again, yeah, with the crew, we practice that as well. So there's lots of lots of training. And then I've, I've been on console when we've had alarms and warnings and cautions go off and nobody reacts and or panics. You just, everybody knows the correct procedure and everybody works the procedure together and everybody knows their role. And in mission control, there's a, there's a mission controller's creed actually. And it's similar to mining in that there, there is no stigma. You know what you know and you know what you don't know. And there is no stigma in saying what you don't know. Don't make a mistake because you're pretending you know something. Or if you make a mistake, say about it so that we can fix it together. You know, there is absolutely no stigma in, in saying those things. I love that. You know what you know and you know what you don't know. And there should be no stigma attached to asking for help if it's something that you don't know. In surgery, of course, I guess it's maybe a historical hangover, but that's that's not really the culture. The culture is very much that there's a lot that you should know. And if you don't know it, you should be ashamed of the fact that you don't know it and you should be better than that. And that's a very different approach to uh, safety. It's a very different approach to uh, working as a team. It's a very different approach to teaching. Um, and in ways it has been effective um, over the years, otherwise it wouldn't be that way. But of course, there's so much that I think we have to learn from other industries in the way that we approach uh, things in healthcare and, and particularly in something like surgical practice. And I, I love that phrase. I think that has so much value to it. But it's also about everyone buying into it, isn't it? You know, you have to have everyone who feels that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has to work with it. But that's that's what gets taught to us in the training and the practicals as well. So like I said, the safety culture, which I guess I hadn't just considered in general before I was in mining, was drilled into me and it's still in my brain now, um, you know, and I, I operate like that. And yeah, for, for space station ops, that sort of mindset is also drilled in. So if you don't know something, also even to the astronauts, so my position now, so six years ago, I changed from payload control to Eurocom. So I'm the person who is the voice of Earth interfacing between the astronauts and all the specialists while they're doing the experiments. So I, I don't have an in-depth technical knowledge of um, particular payloads like I used to. Now I have like a broad knowledge and I study all of the payloads and systems a little bit, but I'm not a specialist in any of them. So on normal days, you know, you, you have a really packed timeline and you're running through it and doing everything and it's usually quite straightforward because we plan it like we we plan it it's the most optimized timeline you've ever seen in your life we've triple checked each day we have professional planners that are putting it all together and they're amazing and so normally it's just you know running the timeline but then if something happens or it's not quite normal then astronauts are really smart people so if something's happening they'll ask a question about it and those kind of days where you have to macgyver a solution or figure out something a little bit I like them a lot because it's, you know, it's an engineer's happy place, I guess. But if they ask something, like we don't give a, a random answer just to say, hey, we've got an answer right now. How great are we? No way. Like if I, if we don't know something, we'll say checking and say, oh, please stand by for 10 minutes. Please stand by for 20 minutes. Or if we really want to work something off console, you can also say, okay, please stand down. Like we don't know how to safely proceed with something or we don't know how to work on this. So we're going to wait and we're going to figure it out and come up with a good solution rather than a fast solution. There's no shame in saying we don't know. And we'll, we'll even say that on Space to Grounds. Just, uh, just so that we have a reference point, because it's a very foreign place to a lot of people. What is it actually to be a flight controller, particularly uh, in the position that you're in now where you're the direct line of communication between the astronauts and Earth uh, for aspects of their mission? Flight control is, um, yeah, it's very diverse, I guess. So you've got a flight director. So there's five mission controls, not just Houston like the movies. There's Houston who does all of the um, systems and safety overall for the American segment. And then Huntsville in Alabama actually does all of the U.S. laboratory science, uh, so all of the payload items. I'll skip over to Japan, who uh, runs the systems and payloads inside the Japanese Science Laboratory. And then Russia has big control center in Star City near Moscow, and they run systems, safety, visiting vehicles, uh, orbital reboosts, refueling, uh, Russian Science Laboratory. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of stuff. And then in Europe, we have mission control flight director to run the European Science Laboratory. But the specialists on the payloads are um, distributed between uh, control centers in different countries. So we don't have one big center. We have several small centers. Each flight controller has a very specific um, responsibility. And all of those responsibilities work together. And uh, we all know and mesh with each other's responsibilities, I guess. So it's kind of rare because it is very clear, like who works on what and whose responsibility is what. And I think in most places... Uh, in any workplace that's that's not always the case and I know maybe in surgery you have very specific assignments so you know who's doing what in a particular day so that kind of a similar comparison you really know who's doing what and you can't just yeah change and become a different flight controller you know because you have to go and recertify so actually when I did uh, recertify for this position by that time I sort of learnt what the different positions were which I had no idea about from the outside before and I was like, you know what, I'd be really good at that position. But th there was never an opening for it. And then there finally was an opening for it. And my company had people there. So I, I asked if I could get an internal thing. So similar to when I was working in the office in Adelaide and asked for an internal posting at the mine. I was like, in Belgium, could I get an internal posting to Germany? They're like, oh, no, you know, you're, you're a bit young. You're probably not really experienced enough. And we're not super confident if we would go and send you in that position. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> I had a very non-imposter-like moment, I think, where I, I, I oversold myself, like, really badly. Um, and I'm definitely not like that uh, normally at all. Like, I'm, I'm trying to be invisible, but I was like, no, I can do this and it's fine. And they're like, all right, but the requirements are you're going to have to certify for this new position in nine weeks. So instead of, you know, nine months, it would have to be nine weeks. I was like, I have no idea if I could do it. Back in the classroom again, 
Uh, so luckily it was a little bit faster because two of the courses counted, but then I had to really redo all the others. And they're very um, high demand as well. Like you have to get more than 80% of each section of each course of the exam to pass. Um, and so I'm, you know, it was like exam week at uni that never ended for nine weeks with all the theoretical and the practical. And in the middle, um, of the theoretical ones, one of the, one of the exams, so so many exams, but one of them had 10 sections and, uh, one section only had three questions. So remember, you've got to get more than 80%. I got one question in that one section wrong whilst passing all the others. So I failed the whole module because of this one question. And, uh, it was, not really a technical one either. It was um, acronyms. So IMMT, JMMT and MMT, which are three management meetings that I'm never involved in. And it was uh, a question about, you know, what sequence were they in each week? And I mean, I actually didn't even remember studying that. So yeah, I mixed up IMMT and JMMT and I'll forever remember this. <laughs> and that made me fail the whole section, which basically meant I wasn't on track to finish in time to qualify, which broke all the conditions of my being posted over there. Um, and the examiner for that was in Munich and I was in Cologne. So really, you know, south, um, southeast and northwest sides of Germany, so opposite sides of the country, there wasn't another opportunity to sit it for quite a few weeks. And I was having senior managers coming in on, on my door while I was trying to study every day in the office being like, oh, can you, can you reset the exam yet? How are you going with this exam? Have you passed it? Have you sorted it? And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is way like this was adding to the stress so much that I was like no I called the examiner in Munich I was like could you please do an exception if I come to Munich tomorrow can you like can you reset the exam with me and they graciously agreed I hightailed it down to Munich that evening um, overnight I went and sat the exam one-on-one um, -on -one with the examiner the next day and passed it all and then got myself back to Cologne ready for the next set of exams uh, in Cologne at the Astronaut Centre and was able to go back on track. But that little blimp uh, almost derailed <laughs> my whole career because I didn't remember the acronyms. IMMT versus JMMT. Yeah. That was almost it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will. And I actually, because oh, I am management now, I actually attend one of those meetings. So <laughs> I will never forget it. <laughs> do, you, do you walk into every one of those meetings and just like have a, a bead of sweat that just rips down the, <laughs> the forehead every time? Yeah, every time, time I dial down. into that telecon, I kind of do a smile, shake of the head at yep. myself and be like, mm, that exam. <laughs> like to work with such a diverse group of people the chemistry of, of working with people from all across Europe and even all across the world you know when you're coordinating something like the ISIS oh really good and I think that's why I um, appreciate working in Europe and I wouldn't want to work in sort of NASA or Japan or Russia because it's so nationalistic um, America, of course, is the worst. They're constantly American soil and American this. And uh, we're on the internal list for JSC and NASA because of the space station program. And so they send all of these emails about, firstly, you know, barbecues at JSC and whatever. And But then also all of the, oh, you know, we're going to launch American yeah. rockets from American soil. And, and I don't think they realize it goes to the internationals as well. It's kind of funny reading them. Um, but Europe's so unique because we're already, you know, so many countries that have different languages and different cultures and even just like uh, we're not at the office anymore. But at lunchtimes, you know, you've got different uh, languages just in the corridor and at, at the tables at lunch and socially you've just got the diverse. Like I just because, you know, I'd had the experience when I was so young being in Italy and then working in Europe and um, that's really and multicultural Australia as well, like having that sort of diverse group of people is really, really great, I think. And um, ESA does that uniquely and extremely well um, out of all the space agencies in the world because we're the only one where we're like a conglomerate already of 20-something space agencies that don't necessarily like each other but then work together. And then that works in our favour because we work really well with all of the other space agencies in the world, even if they don't work with each other. So we're able to do collaborations with the UAE and NASA and China and uh, and Japan and Russia and so many others. And for example, the UAE came to us for their human space flight program when they started to come and get help. And then we ran their control center together with them and set it up. And now India is looking at doing human space flight. And they've also come to us for assistance in setting that up. So 
I think it's just such a unique position to be in where kind of similar to Australia with the multicultural and uh, just really nice work environment. And it's not even just the European countries, because like I said, if you work at a contractor, you can have any nationality as long as you've got work rights in Europe. Um, so yeah, there's, there's actually a Kiwi down in Munich who's been there many more years than me and his accent is so strong and it's so funny when we're both rostered on console at the same time. I love it. Ignition. Lift off of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA, go NASA, go SpaceX, Godspeed, Bob and Doug. America has launched. Uh, tell me a little bit about what it was like to integrate uh, private organizations into this network. Because, of course, SpaceX has just recently uh, launched to the ISS. Um, and that, obviously, I would imagine would bring a new dynamic to, to a lot of the control that's going on. The commercial crew program was something that's been in works for a very long time. They're actually super far behind overall on the schedule. Um, so we've had only Soyuz taking crew to and from um, space, like from Kazakhstan, for the last nine years. Uh, and um, that, yeah, like we were hoping, I guess, to get the crew um, before that. Uh, but anyway, at least, yeah, it's, it's happening now. Uh, so... It's it's kind of, yeah, integrated quite well. And SpaceX was already doing cargo vehicles uh, as commercial cargo together with um, Cygnus Antares for quite a while. So it wasn't unfamiliar to us to work with SpaceX in particular for these operations. And with most of the space agencies, we're very heavily working on uh, lunar exploration and the, the moon base. So we have, uh, yeah, a lot of work that goes on with that, of course, as well. I know NASA just selected their... Um, proposed people for the first Artemis mission and we're quite heavily involved in Gateway which is kind of like a mini ISS in the Lagrange point in the moon so I mean the space station itself is going to be around for another 10 years at least and so we're pretty heavily focused on that uh, and then uh, preparing for yeah lunar projects there's I know Mars gets talked about a lot but that's not realistic anytime soon especially because of the radiation effects uh, on humans um, and bone metabolism as well in such a long journey. So, yeah, we're really focused on on lunar uh, projects at the moment and trying to develop new things for that as well. We've heard the call out for MVAC engine chill. That's getting the MVAC engine ready to light. That'll come at about 240. You mentioned a little while ago, and I just wanted to touch on this very briefly, just because it's a cool thing, that um, you've gone to Comic-Con. And I'm interested in what it must have been like to go to Comic-Con and be a part of that wonderful experience and sort of revisit some of those Star Trek uh, fandoms now that you're actually working as a space flight controller yeah so really amazing and germany is um second only to the us has uh you know the biggest fandom and comic cons around so it's it's amazing uh and quite a lot of them are here in the you know nordrhein-westfalen state where i am um and uh also nearby there's london comic con and brussels not brussels ghent has a, a smaller belgian one but i quite like going to that as well normally because the actors just sort of wander around like Chris Judd from Stargate was wandering around in a Bazinga t-shirt, for example, like, you know, like just, just stuff so like that. Cool. It's so funny. Um, so yeah, really, really well organized and mind blowing being able to go to those. And at the beginning, you know, I had pictures taken with different ones and the, the first main one I went to, I took my ESA badge actually, cause I'm like, this is, <laughs> you know, and I took, I took a photo. I was asked, I asked the actors, can you hold it? And, um, and one of them actually said like, oh, that's, that's very nice. You bought it next door. I'm like, no, I'm a real, Never mind, It's okay. <laughs> and I didn't realize what they were talking about. And then I went to the next room and they were selling, um, model badges from all of the different. Oh, wow. shows. <laughs> oh, so funny. Um, but actually, uh, I, I also, uh, managed to Star Trek Voyager was my thing. And the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, I, uh, it was in New York, the, the, one of the big events. Um, and because I lived here, here in Europe, uh, it's actually quite cheap. It was like $200 to just pop over to New York and back. Uh, so I did and, uh, went to the 50th, uh, which is incredible. And I was able to have, uh, basically the whole cast of Voyager and, uh, with me holding my, um, ESA badge in the middle and sort of bring that around full circle. And the European space agency a few years ago was asked to present because NASA sometimes oh. presents at Comic-Cons in America. So we were asked as the European Space Agency, could we have 
you know, an education booth and provide speakers to talk about real science and engineering in between the actors' talks, and they just wanted to trial and see how it works. So this happened a few years ago. I clearly had a reputation for being a big Trek person, so I was one of the first people they asked. And, uh, I, I mean, amazing. So I was able to present my work in between the actors talking about their work at the official <laughs> Star Trek convention and because we were speakers, be, you know, in the green room when we weren't in the booth or whatever. So, like, with everybody as well, which is completely incredible. Uh, wow. And then um, the ones that they liked, they've asked back. So I've so far been asked back each year. And I have to say it is the pinnacle of, like, my Trek and my ESA stuff together being able to do ESA Star Trek is utterly amazing. This year should have been actually yes. the, the trifecta because I was asked to do Germany, the UK. So we're always asked to do the UK and I keep getting invited back for that one. But then I was asked, uh, and this is quite rare, I was asked to do the American one as well. Um, obviously everything's been postponed, so I'm hoping to have those next year. Um, but one of them, uh, last year, LeVar Burton had laryngitis. Um, so he plays Geordie LaForge on, on Enterprise. My real talk, so my official talk, was a bit later that day. So luckily I was dressed appropriately. But it was, I think, uh, later on. So I'd, I'd gone to breakfast and I left my phone and just went to get a coffee and, and, and eggs and came back and I had like 12 missed calls. And um, it was the organisers. They're like, LeVar Burton has laryngitis. Uh, we have to replace his engineering panel. It starts in 20 minutes. Um, can you be here? I'm like, right. And I abandoned the eggs. I'm like sprinting <laughs> to the main hall. Uh, and uh, they found, uh, yeah, two um, actor engineers, two actors who play engineers on other Star Trek series and two real engineers. And they're like, okay, we're going to put you all on stage. And we're going to see what happens and entertain people for an hour on the big stage. Oh, my god! <laughs> and then they were also like, and to us, they're like, don't talk about too much real engineering. Just be funny. Like, you know, yeah, um, sure. I'm like, I, I don't know how to do that, but okay. So we, um, we were on stage with, yeah, two, two track engineers and another uh, satellite engineer and myself from ESA um, and sort of just did, did banter on stage uh, together and it actually worked extremely well. So as a result of that, um, the the producer of the event came to me afterwards in the green room and said, next year it's Star Trek's Voyager's 20th anniversary. Like, I didn't know that, but I'm like, yes, yes, you know, calm face. <laughs> um, and we're going to have Roxanne Dawson, uh, who played the engineer on Voyager. Would you like to do a one-on-one uh, -on -one panel with just you and her on stage? I'm like, she was my inspiration to become an engineer. Are you kidding me? Wow. So again, one of those flight controller pretend calm face moments going like, yeah, I can yeah. fit that in my calendar. And like, <laughs> as soon as, as soon as I'm out of sight being like, oh my gosh, like I had to do this like happy dance outside the building looking like a crazy person. But, um, it was postponed of course this year, but it's on the cards again for next year. So really looking forward to that. And that's really a full circle of, you know, Trek inspired oh. me. And now with Issa, um, hopefully being able to do, uh, that event. I don't know if anyone has ever achieved their dreams quite as much as you have achieved your dreams. from you know looking out at the night sky growing up watching star trek to literally being on stage as a european space agency flight controller working on the next great missions of humankind and then get to marry that with this amazing fiction that you were so inspired by with the people who inspired you it's just such a beautiful thing It's really great. And I think that's why Trek has been, like ESA has been working really well at the Trek conventions, you know, because the ones that speak about it, we speak about our work, but relate it to Trek stuff. And we were inspired by science fiction, you know, and that's why we became real life space scientists and engineers. And um, the actors appreciate the role that they had in that as well. And like, they're not particularly techie themselves for the most part, but having that sort of connection uh, is really nice. And for the fans of the shows as well, because some of them want to go into more tech detail, um, it's such a nice partnership, I think. Mm. So, uh, yeah, that that ended up has has become a, a sort of permanent thing that we do each year now. 
Um, and uh, during the whole lockdown period, actually, the main ESA people that go to Star Trek, you know, we've got quite a kinship, obviously. And uh, we have a WhatsApp group and we have Friday night virtual drinks together and play Among Us together and things like that. And um, it's just, a, yeah, it's just a really nice um, camaraderie between everybody and um, super nerdy and I love it. I'm going to be watching really closely, Andrew, because I feel like I'm going to see you as a cameo in the star trek discovery at some stage soon <laughs> and uh i'm just gonna i'm just gonna hang out because i know it's coming and uh, at some stage in the next few years I'm, I'm sure it's gonna be there but that's gonna be the next step ah mm. oh, stand by never know <laughs> <laughs>